Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. Clear-eyed, big-hearted, undaunted by challenge, optimistic that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. That's what makes me so hopeful about our future. I believe in change because I believe in you, the American people. And that's why I stand here as confident as I have ever been that the state of our union is strong. That is President Barack Obama last night in his final State of the Union address, swinging between optimism and resignation, between chest-thumping and mea culpas, and calling out a whole bunch of Republican presidential candidates, but none of them by name. Today on The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable, we'll talk about his speech, the Republican response by Nikki Haley from South Carolina. We'll also tackle some of the other news of the week. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joining us, as always, is the host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR, the one and only Colin McEnroe. Hello, Colin. Good morning, Mr. Dankowski. And joining us is Bill Curry. He's columnist for Salon.com and our political analyst. Hello once again, Bill. Great to be here, John. Joining us by phone today is Kalila Brown-Dean. She's Associate Professor of Political <laughs> Science at Quinnipiac University. I'm sorry you couldn't make up here today, Kalila, but it's so good to talk to you. It's good to be with you, at least on the phone, John. Well, I'll tell you what, Kalila, since you're on the phone and you're all ready to go, let me just get your thoughts first. I mean, what were your big takeaways from President Obama's speech last night? Well, I think the president did a really good job of being sort of sarcastic in some of his points, but really hitting this idea of what he plans to do in the last months of office. So, you know, making the joke that I know you all need to get back to Iowa, and then the cutaway to seeing Marco Rubio's face, I thought was a great moment. But I also like that he really downplayed the emotion in the speech and focused on those priority issues and really threw down the gauntlet to say to Republicans and members of Congress, the American people are watching and they are waiting. What are you going to do? Don't let this just be another election year where nothing happens. What is the mark that we're going to leave, not just me as president or just my administration, but this term for all of us? Of course, you know, he did make it a point that there probably wasn't a whole lot that was going to get done by this Congress in session, maybe for 80 days or so between now and Election Day. They haven't really shown the resolve to get much done. As much as he talked about bipartisanship, Kalila, um, he he wants to achieve some things in this last year in office, but it seems unlikely that much will move forward. I, I think I probably have a better chance of winning Powerball tonight than the president does of getting bipartisan support for some of these issues. But again, to at least state it and say, look, I understand what I'm facing. I'm under- I understand there's nothing I can say to you tonight that will convince you that you should work with me. But I want to make it very publicly known that I'm not the one here that's obstructing advancement, that this has to be a bipartisan commitment. And if it's not, then it's up to the voters to hold all of us accountable. Colin, well, what did you say? What did you take away from last night? I, I sort of there's sort of a two pronged but ultimately unitary thing that I saw in last night's speech. I mean, his goal seemed to be 
very powerfully to discredit Republican rhetoric, uh, and for kind of two different reasons. One of them is because I, I think he genuinely feels as though a lot of the rhetoric coming from the campaign trail right now, uh, xenophobic and paranoid as it is and militaristic as it is, is not good for the American people, just sort of not good for the country. But obviously also he'd like to discredit Republican rhetoric because so many of his accomplishments are so fragile, uh, so um, easily destroyable by a Republican successor. So it's really important to him at that level, I think, to discredit some of these ideas as well. Um, and uh, parenthetically, I would say every time he jabs at Trump or implicitly jabs at Trump, Trump can use that to jack his numbers up. That's not necessarily bad news for Democrats or Obama that Trump's numbers goes up, go up, at least temporarily. Then the second thing he was trying to do, and it's much harder is to get Americans to think proportionally. That's not how Americans think. So, you know, I mean, he's basically saying, look, ISIL is not a threat to our existence. <laughs> like a $600 billion defense budget. I mean, the, the bitter irony is we have a $600 billion plus defense budget, but people are worried about this 36,000 ragtag bunch of people in, in Iraq and Syria. Um, and, and in fact, you don't worry about them. The concern is that they will transform us into a nation we don't recognize, not because they kill so many of us, not because they pose a military threat. We can beat anybody in any conventional military scenario but because of the kinds of things that he's talking about with Republican rhetoric, that we will turn into a xenophobic, uncharitable, um, immigrant-rejecting uh, nation that, it just, that, that nobody familiar with the American vision would recognize. And th that said, of course, he did spend an awful lot of the middle of the speech, Colin, talking about how the American military is the greatest, the biggest in the world. He did the chest-thumping thing that he has done a number of times now, which essentially says, in case anybody wonders how tough I am, just go ask Osama bin Laden. And and to me, it did feel like everything you just said is true, but it was tempered in large part by some of his own um, very puffed up talk about American exceptionalism and American military might. Yeah, and a little of that was sort of Luther, the key and peel version of Obama, coming out a little bit. Yeah, you want to ask, ask somebody, go ask, uh, um, ask Saddam Hussein. So, I mean, ask um, Osama, Osama bin Laden. Bin Laden yeah. So, but here's the thing. I think he has to do that. I mean, I, I, I mean, I was a little freaked out by it, too, as you know from Twitter. But uh, I think he has to do that. That's a particular constituency that he has to talk to because it really is important. I mean, people – I think in, if you ask most Americans what has been done about ISIL in the Middle East, they'd say, I don't know, kind of nothing or close to nothing. Um, Operation Inherent Resolve, which is what it's call, called, involving Amer mainly the U.S. and its military partners, in less than two years has done 10,000 airstrikes at a U.S. cost of $5.5 billion. Uh, you know, in, in, I mean, if you believe estimates of the size of ISIL, that's about one airstrike for every three active ISIL members. <laughs> so, I mean, in fact, we've conducted this massive military operation because we're really good at that in the way that he said. I mean, I'm not always comfortable with how good we are at it, but we're really good at it. We've got by, you know, a factor of three, the biggest military operation in the world. You want a war? We can give you a war anytime you want. Um, and that was very much his point. I don't know ultimately that that's the solution. The more that you degrade ISIL's semi-conventional military capacity in the Middle East, the more, in fact, they have to look towards less conventional means of striking. So you get Paris. So you get San Bernardino. I, I, I'll just say, Bill, all, all of this is just gets back to but my point is if we start our program by playing the, the end of the speech in which um, 
optimistic that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. That that middle part, as we've been talking about, about how we are better at killing terrorists and we have the biggest American or we have the biggest military in the world by a factor of however many. Um, it, it does send a strange and I think to many Americans perhaps conflicted message. What's your take? I think um, <clears throat> first of all, I agree in in. in in so many ways, it reminded me of the very first speech I heard him give, which is the same first speech most people heard uh, in 2004 when he spoke at the Democratic National Convention in, in uh, Boston. The peroration was almost identical to the end of last. It was sort of not just the bookend of his presidency, but of his national career. Uh, you know, we are, we're not just uh, liberal and conservative states. We're the United States. You know, we have uh, God-fearing people who don't want – you know, just in that sort of – in that great peroration about unity – and it's both his great strength and his great weakness. I love the civility of his tone. When I'm at my most dissatisfied with him, I appreciate his devotion and faith in reason and civility. And the the piece that was lacking in 2004, I thought was lacking last night, which is this, so what are you going to do about it? Uh, and, uh, and, you know, he posed those four questions. And I'll just go to the, the, the question of national security as one example. Uh, one of his best lines. He had so many good lines. It was a wonderful piece of rhetoric. It was almost a piece of literature. He's given the best speeches, I think, of his career in the, the Charleston speech, this thing last night. Uh, he, he's never been a better speaker than he is now. Uh, but when he stopped to say, you know, who do they call? They don't call Beijing. They don't call Moscow. They, don't call, they, they call us. Uh, and, and repeating all the sort of uh, uh, tough talk that you guys were both talking about a second ago. And listening in my <laughs> den, I thought to myself, and how's that working out? Mm-hmm. And is this going to be the system where every time there's a conflict in the world, they call us? Because that means we have to come up with an army. That means we get all the blowback. That means that the people whom, whom we've defeated will reorganize as terrorists. That means the permanent underclass that is seething throughout the globe will always be focused on us. That means there will always be questions of our the validity of our actions under international law. Our job is to convince the rest of the world to accept the rule of law. So you begin by doing exactly that. I was thrilled when he defended Muslims. I was very happy when he uh, uh, mentioned the the problems of the great, great mistakes of Vietnam and Iraq. But I needed him to elaborate on a solution. Uh, And it was sort of the same. He posed four questions. And each time, it it is, again, it's the weakness of Obama. When you hear him describe the the problem – and when you hear him uh, uh, address us and describe us to ourselves, our best selves to us, uh, it's uplifting. And then when you get to the point about how to solve it, when he said the system's rigged, the only answer he had was redistricting. And he actually said the constitutional – that campaign finance reform might be constitutionally uh, 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 unacceptable. He actually suggested there might not be an answer under the constitution. I was stunned. Colin? Um, First of all, I would agree with essentially um, everything that Bill said. I, I will say that I think he – it was kind of interesting the number of things he left out. All right. So uh, we're going to talk later about Governor Malloy uh, and his prominent place there. But it turns out the reason that he had a prominent place there was as this kind of placeholder for stuff that Obama was not going to talk about last night. President Obama did not really talk about criminal justice reform, which I think we all thought he was. Um, he didn't talk about reproductive rights. He didn't really talk about Black Lives Matter. He didn't talk about you know, any of the sort of underlying issues behind Black Lives Matter. It wasn't that kind of speech. 
It was the kind of speech that Bill uh, is talking about, about right now. And I was a little surprised by some of the things that were left out. I do think there was a little bit more of a cockiness to this speech than we've heard in the past. And I do contrast it with a speech that George Bush gave eight years ago. Um, I actually looked it up today. And, of course, it had the line, uh, exports are rising, but the housing market has declined at kitchen tables across our country. There is concern about our economic future. Boy, did that ever turn out to be true. And, you know, there was uh, a little line in Obama's speech last night that indicated that he'd been to go see the big short, too. You know, he's talking about, well, I don't think these problems are caused. You know, I don't think the average American's got offshore accounts or is hiding all this stuff and everything. I mean, there, there was a little moment there, you know, near the beginning of the speech where he sounded for about 90 seconds like Bernie Sanders. But the truth is, I mean, he's leaving the country in better shape than he found it. Now, that doesn't take much. You know, if you think about the shape the country was in in 2008, economically and abroad, uh, it doesn't take much. But he, he really can claim that. And in some ways, he didn't toot his horn as loud as he could have last night. Uh, Kalila, I'd love your take on this notion of, of the things that he left out of the speech, things that we expected, as Colin uh, said, that we might hear last night about guns, about criminal justice reform, about some other issues in a much more substantive way. So I tweeted out last night, wait, it's over. That was brief, because even though the president said, I'm not going to keep you very long, this speech will be shorter, I felt like he was building up to talking about the types of things that Colin mentioned, and that never happened. So to look out in the audience and to see Obersfeld there, whose you know, plight to try to be able to legally marry his partner led to that monumental Supreme Court decision to see all of these people in the audience who were guests of the president because they're connected to these policy issues never formally be recognized or there's those issues be included i thought was a missed moment the fact that one of the co-founders of the black lives matter movement was there as a guest of representative barbara lee of california but never acknowledged and mentioned so it was sort of a subtle acknowledgement that they were there but most people watching had no idea who they were or the issues that they were connected to. And it shows, uh, Kalila, and we've talked about this before, it's just another potential missed opportunity for him to connect his presidency to the issues that Black Lives Matter have been trying to bring to the American people. He, he continually runs, walks, turns away from this issue as something, even at this time when he is walking away from his presidency in his last State of the Union address, he just walks away from this issue. And, and I'm just wondering, Kalila, how it strikes you. Well, it's problematic for a number of reasons, that days before the State of the Union address, Kendrick Lamar was invited to the White House. I never thought I'd see someone with cornrows and Timberlands sitting in the Oval Office. That was a powerful moment. It was a way for the president to connect his concerns to the on-the-ground concerns of particularly young people, but also of people of color. So I didn't expect him to have Kendrick Lamar's music playing as theme music as he walked out, although that would have been pretty poignant. <laughs> but at least acknowledge that this movement connects to many of the things he said before about people getting involved, about people taking ownership of their democratic process and understanding there are more ways to do that than just simply voting. You have to at least acknowledge that commitment. Well, Can I just interject yeah, that uh, Paula Page thinks that to pimp a butterfly is actually a social problem that's traveling from Connecticut to Maine right now. <laughs> we'll, right. It originated in Connecticut. We'll, we all know that. We'll talk about Paula Page a little bit later on. We're, we're talking about the, the speech last night in the wheelhouse. Before we take, to, uh, take a break, let's listen to a, a regret that President Obama talks about. 
It's one of the few regrets of my presidency that the rancor and suspicion between the parties has gotten worse instead of better. I have no doubt a president with the gifts of Lincoln or Roosevelt might have better bridged the divide. And I guarantee I'll keep trying to be better so long as I hold this office. So, Bill, I want to ask you about two things, about this theme that he had about his inability to fix the politics of America. And as he was saying it, I think we were looking at that that uh, body of lawmakers thinking we're not going to fix the politics of America anytime soon. Um, but it also, I, I think, points to some of the things that Collins said he left out of the speech, uh, the problematic issues that he, he has with Black Lives Matter right now and why he didn't talk about guns last night is that it's, he seemed hell-bent on not bringing up those issues which are most divisive in America, the ones that really matter to a lot of people right now but will cause some people to throw stuff at the television and other people to stand up and cheer. And it seems like he backed away from all those things in favor of saying, I really wish in this last year I could just bring more people together. I, I agree with what you just said, that when I think of that, of, of, of what we just heard, it goes to two things that are just so fundamental to his identity and to his presidency. Uh, the very idea that you could fix the culture of Washington without reforming the institutions of Washington is the greatest intellectual mistake of his presidency. And his decision not to keep the campaign promises on reform of uh, open, uh, uh, more open government, watchdog, uh, uh, bullet, uh, whistleblower protections, uh, uh, revolving doorbells, his dumping all of that, not because Republicans opposed it, those were all things you could have done by executive order. Those were the peroration moments. Those were the big applause lines of his 2008 campaign at the end. It was almost all he talked about. And when he got into office, he didn't do it. And so that's why he gets to the end and he gets to these moments and he's talking about fixing the culture and he's taking responsibility. And the problem is I think that he never really faced the problem. In that last December budget, uh, the Democrats agreed without telling anyone to let in two more big dark money loopholes. That was the price of, of, of quote-unquote bipartisanship in Washington. It's the bipartisan center that's broken. And that's the biggest thing he doesn't get. And the people who were, he most had to reach, that working class, many of them white voters – uh, 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 who who have lost social status, who are falling prey to the neo-fascist rhetoric that's arising in the country. They need to hear solutions. They need to hear that the Democrats know what's wrong with the government and mean to fix it. And they didn't hear that last night. You know, um, President Obama is a human being too, and he said that in the past that his greatest frustration as president has been his inability to do anything at the national level on the gun issue, that having lived through Newtown and all this yes. other stuff, he can't do anything about it. And I think one of the reasons he didn't talk about it last night is at a human level he's tired of banging his head against the wall. He knows he's not going to get anywhere on it, so why talk about it? But I do, do think it deprived him, just to come back to my original point, of the ability to talk about proportionality. I mean, you're so worried about ISIL, 30,000 people die in your country every year from from gun violence. You know, it's so many, it's such a huge percentage of those deaths are not necessary, you know. And, and so you're worried about, I mean, so far domestic terrorism hasn't really killed a lot of people in this country. Maybe it will. And one of the bubbling under things that's there in that speech not really said is, you know, we don't really know what the future holds. It could be that will will become more like like England during the height of the IRA. That there will be that we'll have to learn to sweep up the glass and set up the cafe tables and go on after incidents of domestic terrorism. But that hasn't happened yet. What happens all the time, and we live with it 
as that kind of daily acceptable breakage is gun violence that we perpetrate on ourselves and on each other. Um, but I, I, as I say, I think I understand why he didn't talk about it. Bill, quickly. And the, and, and, and the most brilliant thing in the speech uh, of a number of brilliant things was, was, the, was the central question he posed, which is, how's it going? And his answer is pretty good. And uh, convincing uh, the American people that it's actually going pretty good, it's not just about proportionality. It's about the negativity and about the mood. When I worked with Clinton, the violent crime dropped in America more than it had at any other period in American history. And it was the worst violent crime and the hardest people never thought would change. And we would poll and ask people, what's crime doing? They would all say it was going up. And then we'd have the pollster explain the actual facts and they would say, nope, that's not true. <laughs> that's not true. It's really going up. Well, and so he yeah. was taking out – he knows we have to be in a mood for him to elect a Democrat, for us for, – for a Democrat to win the presidency this November. People have to get that the answer to how's it going is – all in all, pretty good. He also had one other line about sort of the facts on the ground as we see them. I thought it was one of the better lines of the night. Let's listen. Sixty years ago, when the Russians beat us into space, we didn't deny Sputnik was up there. We didn't argue about the science or shrink our research and development budget. We built a space program almost overnight, and 12 years later, we were walking on the moon. <laughs> And so, Kalila Brandine, what's really funny about that is, you know, we saw Paul Ryan almost laugh. It's a funny line. Um, and he makes a really good point about climate deniers and everything else. Of course, later on in the speech, and this is a speech filled with contradictions, he talks about, hey, and, I, you know, $2 gas on my watch, isn't that a good thing? Well, that kind of contradicts the thing you just said about him, how important cl- uh, global climate change is. So uh, in, on one hand, he's saying, look at the facts on the ground. We got it right. On the other hand, he's kind of, again, puffing himself up around gas prices, which might be causing part of the problem in the first place. Well, I have to admit, as someone who was able to get gas yesterday for a dollar sixty-nine a gallon, I'm a little happy about that. <laughs> I'll bet. But I, you you know, had a discount card. But I also think it's about recognizing what everyday Americans care about. So a lot of people care about climate change in the abstract, but in the immediate sense, they want to know how much will it cost me to warm my home this winter. So while it is a contradiction for the president and one that we should definitely you know, point out, it's also a contradictory view that many Americans hold. And I think the president is really good at playing to those kinds of views and playing to those kinds of emotions, even when we point out the inconsistency. Kalila Brown, Dean's an associate professor of political science at Quinnipiac University. She joins us in the wheelhouse along with Bill Curry, columnist for Salon.com. And Colin McEnroe, the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Republican response from last night by Nikki Haley, which was very interesting. And also take a look at what polls are saying about Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. Not necessarily good news for Hillary. That's coming up next in the wheelhouse, where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. It's Wednesday, so it's the Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. If you love the Wheelhouse, you know you can join us for our next Wheelhouse Uncensored event. It's next Tuesday at the Tavern in New Haven. We're going to talk about presidential politics and a lot more with our own Kalila Brown-Dean from Quinnipiac University, who's joining us on the phone today. Also, the New Haven Independence, Paul Bass, who knows more about New Haven than just about anybody. For tickets and information, visit us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Are you excited about the Facebook, uh, or Facebook, uh, the uh, Wheelhouse Uncensored event, Colin? I am excited, and I'm going to see him in any bad words. 
Yeah, we, we will say maybe a few bad words. What's coming up on your show this afternoon, Colin? Uh, this afternoon, uh, because, in fact, uh, my Packers won and your Pittsburgh Steelers won, we're doing a show about football with Greg Easterbrook, who uh, is an expert on national public policy, has written for all the big public policy magazines, places like The Atlantic, but he's also this football freak with a lot of really interesting things to say uh, about the NFL. So we'll be talking about that today. Very quickly, speaking of live things, tonight at yes. 7 p.m. at Watkinson, I'll be doing a thing about uh, humor and comedy. It's dark. It's cold. You're depressed. Um, so this is um, – it is specifically also about Connecticut's relationship. I mean, Connecticut seems like a pretty unfunny place. So we'll be exploring that question. <laughs> There'll be also live improv performances interrupting things from time to time. That, sounds, well. like, that sounds like a lot of fun. And so you can uh, join Colin as part of his regular series Watkinson.org. That's where you go to find out about Watkinson.org. Uh, joining us in the studio as well as Bill Curry. In just a moment, we're going to be talking a bit about Bill Clinton's visit to Connecticut and Hillary Clinton's prospects in Iowa and New Hampshire. Quickly, Kalila Brown-Dean. I want to spend some time on Nikki Haley, who gave the Republican response. You and I think a lot of other people gave her pretty high marks for her speech. I think Nikki Haley did a great job. And, you know, putting aside previous responses given by people like Bobby Jindal and Marco Rubio, I think Nikki Haley set very nicely what that Republican establishment position was, that we should not be targeting people because of who they are. But she kept it in line as saying, but we need to have really stringent guidelines, not allow illegal immigration, not allow people to come without strict background checks. The big problem I had with her speech, however, is that she gives this great uh, acknowledgement of the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church, but then jabs at cities like mm-hmm. Ferguson and Baltimore to say, we didn't riot, we mm-hmm. didn't burn things down, we just prayed. That's how we got through. And the fact that she called Dylan Roof a terrorist, I was blown away by that alone. But it also made me say, well, do we usually take terrorists to Burger King on the way to have them locked up? So there were a lot of inconsistencies within the speech, but overall I think she did a good job. Yeah, and as I tweeted out last night, the fact that she did call him a terrorist I thought was was a, a really remarkable thing. But your point about uh, not rioting when other cities are rioting, there's a big difference, Kalila, between uh, the type of massacre that we saw that was a private individual, a white supremacist, gunning down people inside a church, and a law enforcement officer not necessarily doing his or her duty. Those are two entirely different things. Completely different thing. And what she did not say, not that I expected her to, but I know many people like me were thinking, well, what about Walter Scott? an unarmed black man in South Carolina who was shot in the back by a police officer, caught on video trying to cover up his crime, aided by another police officer. What about the young woman who was attacked in a classroom by a school resource officer whose friend was arrested for exercising her First Amendment right to videotape that? So while you can applaud how your city responded and how your state responded to the massacre at Mother Emanuel, that's what they were supposed to do. Let's talk about the ongoing challenges instead of trying to say we're better than those other places. It's Bill, an ongoing crisis. Bill, a quick response to the response by Nikki I, Haley? I, I, I thought it was – I agree with everything that, uh, uh, that the professor just said. And uh, I think that it was really interesting to see this one woman in this one moment bridge the gap that Rubio and Bush and so many people have tried to gap a, a bridge on immigration. She came – she was the first Republican this year to come close to speaking to both sides – and it's not just because she's a woman and a woman of color and a woman of some of success in her state in political terms, but if she has that kind of ability to be a tea partier who care she she is the tea partier who carried water 
for the Republican corporate establishment on immigration last night and seemed to have pulled it off. If she has skills at that high level, she could be around for a while. And I thought that it was a, it was an opportunity, Colin, for a nationwide audience to actually hear a Republican candidate uh, who is probably going to be a candidate for vice president, saying what you might hear in a general election as opposed to just the stuff that has been coming out of these debates and on 24-hour news channels during the course of this Republican nom- nomination process. Yeah, I mean, I, I, first of all, maybe I'm a little bit more cynical about all this, but I mean, I think she sort of had one major job last night, which was put to put as much daylight between the Republican Party and Donald Trump as she possibly could. The Republican Party has a big problem right now, <laughs> and his name is Donald Trump. And, and somehow or other, they've got to differentiate themselves it's a much bigger problem for them than it is for anybody else if he keeps staying within, you know, mirror-fogging distance uh, of the Republican nomination. I thought that was sort of, sort of her job. I thought the other Republican response last night was Paul Ryan. You know, I mean, we all had a lot of fun on Twitter just talking about his Zoolander-like, you know, uh, you know El Tigre <laughs> look that he just kept frozen on his face. But this guy, he didn't applaud for, like— progress beating Ebola, you know? I mean, there was like nothing he would applaud for. And in fact, that's backed up by what he said going in. The press asked him, what do you want Obama to say? And he said, I want him to take it all back. Everything he did, Todd Frank's <laughs> Affordable Care, he just ticked through, it, ticked through it all. And that's the real Republican response in terms of what will play out in our nation's capital over the next nine months. In the next nine months on the campaign trail, a whole bunch of other things are going to be happening. And Nikki Haley's response was much more germane to that. In Washington, they are not going to give ground. You know, I mean, they have made that very clear. And, I mean, Ryan's posture and, and, and visage last night was – it wasn't just I mean, it wasn't just a metaphor. It was a reality. That's what's going to happen. Notable, though, that he did clap the first time mm-hmm. for religious tolerance. He did clap the first time whenever President right. Obama talked about being kinder to the people who are coming in. And that I, seems to be sending a type of message as I, well. I, I saw the visual differently. I just the, the number of times he laughed with I've never seen a vice president and a speaker talk so much during the president's address. I was almost thinking Obama would turn around and say, could you guys quiet down back there? And, uh, <laughs> That's and, Biden, and, right? And, like, and, like, yeah, no, it was Biden yeah. initiated the first one. But then it actually went back. I was watching pretty closely, and it actually went, kind of went back and forth, and there were three or four times when they were smiling and nodding as if they might have found some <laughs> common ground on something I he had just said. Right. No, 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 no. As they smiled and nodded as if they had. Clearly they hadn't. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, so we mentioned this before. Uh, Governor Dan Malloy was a special guest of uh, the First Lady last night. Uh, he was sitting not next to her, but one seat down from her, uh, a seat left vacant for the victims of gun violence. Um, here's Governor Malloy speaking on MSNBC after the speech. I loved it. I thought it was great. At one point, I uh, kind of reached over to the First Lady, and and, and in a positive way, I said, is is this Professor Obama? Because it really was conversational. He was getting it off his chest. He needed to get it off his chest. And by the way, did some other great things, like reminding America that we've created 14 million jobs during his presidency, twice the number of the the Bush administration. You know, he deserves some some credit for this, but he's trying to lead. And, and, you know, those, those guys that were running for the Republican nomination, I'm not sure they like America, to tell you the, the truth. They talk it down constantly. It's unbelievable. <laughs> we couldn't identify who the person was on Rachel Maddow's show last night, Colin, who went, oh, uh, in the background. But um, that's Governor Malloy's reaction. Um, what are your thoughts on the governor's place there, his reaction to the speech? Well, I think with each passing day leading up to the State of the Union address, it became clearer and clearer to us here in Connecticut. This really was a little bit of a debutante ball for Governor Malloy. I mean, he is, was seated right next to Michelle Obama, and then she had a lot of guests. I mean, he was the one that you could really see. Um, and 
And I think he was there as a placeholder for a whole bunch of policies, most of them having to do with criminal justice, but also in the minimum wage area and stuff like that, stuff that he's been able to do at a state level, uh, particularly vis-a-vis guns that um, Obama cannot do at a national level because of the political intransigence that we're talking about right now. And and it has been interesting to read little pieces in national publications. I mean, Slate had, you know, a big, had had a substantial feature on Governor Malloy. And we talked last week about the New York Times editorial. So, yeah, I mean, he may be pulling 38 percent approval rating or whatever it is right right here right now. But in many ways, he is stepping onto the national stage in a much bigger way than he has in the past. And Kalila stepping on the national stage in part to do what he does pretty well. He's there on, on MSNBC. He doesn't just talk about the president. He uses the opportunity to say those Republicans don't even like America. I mean, one thing he we know he's very good at is if he gets his back up, he's ready to take on people and say some things that other people aren't real, willing to say. And I think that as a surrogate, whether we're talking about as a surrogate for Hillary Clinton or for the president, Malloy is able to say things that they cannot and say it in a way that makes people listen. And I think also to to point out last night, the empty seat that was between Governor Malloy and First Lady Obama was very important and was very poignant to say, this is the seat I'm leaving for victims of gun violence. But again, the misstep of last night, just looking at Twitter and social media, a lot of people were tweeting, who's that guy beside the empty seat? So unless you were watching a network that you know had captions and, and letting you know who people were, it could have been done in a, in a more direct way to say, this is Governor Malloy of Connecticut. Here are the things that he's worked on that align with this speech without having to say, and here's his formal introduction to the party. I'm not sure how many people watched the speech and then did the effort or the research to find out who he is and how his policies are so connected to this administration. And I would just say, in in many ways, Malloy is the perfect person to have sitting in the gallery next to uh, Michelle Obama, and he's the perfect person to have as a representative for Clinton, but it goes to sort of the heart of the party right now and the difference within the party. If your primary concerns are cultural, if same-sex marriage and choice and and the death penalty and and gun safety, if that's where you begin in politics, then you're probably pretty well satisfied with Malloy if you're a Democrat and you're very satisfied with Obama and you're crazy about Hillary. And if your first questions are about the corruption of the government, the domination of corporate interests, the inability uh, of, of the middle class uh, to, to uh, have a sustainable life uh, uh, around jobs that pay enough money to, to, to feed a family, then you're probably with Bernie Sanders or you're probably in some other revolt. And so that's the kind of – you know the, the, there's, a, there's a real difference there in terms of what Democrats are going to stand for that we're about to fight out over the next few weeks – Well, I I want to turn to Neil Vigder, who's a reporter for the Connecticut Post and other Hearst, Connecticut newspapers. He was covering an event yesterday in Connecticut where Bill Clinton coming through the state, uh, stumping for, but more importantly, raising money for his wife, Hillary Clinton. This comes at a time, of course, when uh, things are going much better in the polls for her uh, main rival for the nomination, Bernie Sanders, the Vermont senator. Uh, Neil Victor, welcome back to the show, first of all. Hi, John. Happy New Year. Good ha- to talk to you. Yeah, Happy New Year to you, too. So so what did Bill Clinton have to say? Well, uh, it, it was interesting. Uh, so, you know, closed media event, uh, but a uh, person uh, who was uh, on the guest list told me that uh, – Clinton uh, avoided uh, bringing up Republicans, did not mention uh, Donald Trump, who's publicly uh, been uh, kind of attacking him uh, on his uh, 
previous marital infidelity. Uh, Clinton really was uh, kind of hammering home to supporters of Hillary uh, her resume, uh, saying that uh, she by far has the best credentials of anybody running for president. Uh, that, uh, you know, going back to uh, her days as First Lady of Arkansas, she's uh, been a problem solver. She's confronted things like the, uh, you know, uh, poor uh, education system in the state of Arkansas uh, when, when Bill Clinton was governor. Uh, he talked about uh, how uh, after yeah, graduating from Yale Law School, she really had the pick of the litter in terms of, uh, you know, law firm jobs, and she uh, decided to, uh, you know, sacrifice personal gain and, uh, you know, kind of uh, do legal aid uh, society work. So uh, it was really uh, kind of uh, touting her resume and uh you know he brought up uh some of their experiences yale law students uh he uh, kind of uh, shared some uh humor and and talked about his mom uh so you know it, the kind of quintessential bill clinton uh storyteller and uh from what i'm told you know the people uh, who attended were pretty mesmerized uh, by his speech uh, among the people in attendance joe gannon was there yes uh, you know there was this kind of uh, uncertainty uh, going into this fundraiser on uh, whether Mayor Ganim uh, was going to be invited. Uh, up until yesterday afternoon, uh, we had been in touch with the mayor's office, and they said that he was not planning on going and that he hadn't been invited and, uh, you know, kind of pressed uh, his office saying, well, would he like to go? Is he feeling kind of <laughs> left out? And uh, obviously uh, there's, uh, you know, the, the, it's not the backstory, but uh, Ganim's past and, uh but from uh, what we wound up hearing, uh, he wound up going to the fundraiser yeah. with his son, Rob. And uh, so uh, and that was kind of uh, definitely uh, a turn of events there. It was a little weird. Colin? The symbolism that I like uh, about all this is the guy who hosted this thing uh, lives in Bridgeport. His name is, I may be pronouncing it, Onitukwu. Uh, he's from Nigeria. His family, he fled here, I think, 25 years ago during civil conflict involving the secession of the Republic of Biafra. And then his, he's just an incredible success story. He went to the University of New Haven uh, to get, I think, his MBA. And then he sort of led a whole bunch of small tech companies and made them bigger. Uh, and there's, all, first of all, it symbolizes a lot of tech activity that's going on down the southern Naugatuck Valley and then moving west towards New York, companies we may not know about. We're all obsessing about GE. Well, there's a lot of other stuff going on, including the three or four success stories that this guy's involved in. But more than that, it's like he stepped out of the pages of Obama's speech. He's an immigrant. He's a success story. He came here essentially as a refugee. Uh, he, he's built all this kind of terrific stuff. And now he considers himself a very much uh, global citizen. He's already trying to transition a little bit out of what he's been doing and more towards philanthropic efforts. All over the globe. His 17-year-old daughter is taking a gap year in Borneo to work with orangutans. His wife is involved in uh, women's issues around the globe. I mean, sort of this is the kind of the person that Obama <laughs> was talking very hopefully about last night. He actually exists and was hosting this it, fundraiser. And his, yeah, he has it, a fundraiser in a big fancy house in which he's paying taxes to the city of Bridgeport, not, right. not in Coscob or Darien or any place else. Yeah. yeah. 
Although more yeah. people will know that Ganem was there. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and I, w- I was struck by, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, every time you get uh, national political figures coming into Fairfield County, it's the Gold Coast, it's Greenwich, it's Darien, it's Stanford. Uh, that's where the cash is. And, uh, you know, as, as I point out in my story this morning, certainly there's that kind of uh, paradox there of, Bill Clinton, uh, you know, coming into a city that's known for its high poverty rate uh, uh, to uh, to raise a big sum of uh, money for Hillary. Uh, Bill, you know, I, I would just say it, it, uh, that I think of Malloy sitting next uh, the first lady last night, uh, and then uh, Bill Clinton with with Joe Ganim yesterday, and I remember that Jerry Brown uh, beat Bill Clinton in Connecticut in the primary uh, uh, in, uh, in 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 nineteen ninety two. And uh, we're about to have, uh, 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 I think, somewhat of an earthquake in this primary uh, race. But appearing with Joe Ganim and Dan Malloy in Connecticut is a little like the Republicans nominating Chris Christie for president. It's okay if you don't care about New Jersey, you know, if you want. (laughs) And and, and whatever it did for their careers, it didn't help the politics of the national Democrats. And that idea of in our state of people's feelings about the state politics sifting up and affecting these federal races, I think will be important this year. Um, a, a, Kalila Brown, Dean, very quickly, you, your thoughts on the, the Bill Clinton factor during uh, this campaign so far and what you think that we'll see moving forward. I think Bill Clinton is a very important surrogate for Hillary Clinton, but really for any candidate. But to relate it back here at home, there is something very problematic about going into a city mm-hmm. like Bridgeport, which is suffering in a number of ways and having this very high-powered fundraiser. So it's great for the candidate, but the citizens of Bridgeport are saying, what about us? What do we benefit from this? How can we articulate our views and concerns? And so you have to have a way to bridge that gap. It's not just people writing checks, but you'll need to get those votes as well. Neil, a quick thought on that before I let you go? Well, uh, interestingly, uh, you had a group of uh, Bernie Sanders supporters who staged their own kind of rally last night. And, uh, you know, it kind of brought together elements of the Working Families Party. And uh, originally, uh, the NAACP of Greater Bridgeport was uh, announced as a sponsor of this rally. And they quickly uh, backed away from it and said, uh, look, you know, uh, we're not getting uh, in between uh, Hillary and and Bernie. Uh, But the kind of point of that was that, uh, you know, getting money out of politics and this, uh, you know, was kind of out of character for the, for the city of Bridgeport. Yeah, yeah, this rally for Bernie Sanders just a few miles away at a skate park. Uh, we have Ashley Giles Perkins uh, was there, said the two events reflect a difference in appeal between these candidates. Mm, yes. Oh, uh, let's, let's listen. Oh, we don't have the tape. I'm sorry. I apologize. Uh, she she talks about uh, the differences that we were just uh, enumerating. Wait, uh, it's Neil, such a classic Bernie moment, too, right? It's like a, those are the people in that big, big warm house. They're eating canapes and having drinks. They're just such a bunch of jerks. They should be down here in the ski park freezing to death. A little more empathy. Okay, just a, just a little more empathy Neil, would be appropriate Neil, here, Bernie. Neil, but. Neil, Neil Vigder is a reporter for the Connecticut Post and the other Connecticut uh, newspapers. Thanks so much, Neil. I appreciate it. Great to be with you, John, everyone. Have a good day. Um, When we come back, we're going to take a look at poll numbers. Uh, Not so good for Hillary Clinton. Pretty good for the shivering Bernie Sanders supporters out in the cold. Maybe they're doing pretty well in New Hampshire and Iowa where it's cold right now. We're in the wheelhouse of Wicked Ladies Roundtable. Don't go away.
This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, Puerto Rico has defaulted on millions of dollars in debt payments. We'll get the latest from the island. We're also going to hear from Pedro Bermudez, who is a Puerto Rican filmmaker who lives here in Hartford. And he's telling a story about cockfighting in Hartford and how it is translated from uh, the island. It's a very interesting story and a brand new film. Hope you can join us tomorrow. Today, it's the Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. We're joined by Kalila Brown-Dean from Quinnipiac University, Bill Curry, columnist for Salon.com, and our own Colin McEnroe. We were talking about sort of the Hillary uh, Clinton supporters versus the Bernie Sanders supporters down in, in Bridgeport the other day. Well, Bridgeport isn't really going to be a battleground, but New Hampshire is. Iowa is. Looks like Bernie Sanders has a 53 to 39 point lead over Hillary Clinton in the latest Monmouth University poll. That's in New Hampshire. Uh, the Q poll, the Quinnipiac University poll, uh, Sanders over Clinton, 49 to 44 percent in Iowa, Colin. I, this is this is kind of a little late in the game for Hillary Clinton to be losing ground to Bernie Sanders. It is late in the game. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, uh, you know, you sort of contrast it with what's going on over the Republican side. There, there are these candidates who basically David Frum wrote a great piece about this in The Atlantic, basically. And the theme being the economy recovered, but the people didn't, you know, and and so in each case, but probably much more articulately and persuasively, definitely more articulately and persuasively, Bernie is making that case um, in a way that probably Hillary Clinton can't as well. And it's a very, very powerful argument. Now, having said that, I I, I do think that Hillary Clinton's path to victory is probably a a little bit different, maybe even, I mean, I know Bill's going to talk about this, but um, maybe a little bit different than than Obama's was in 2008. And I don't, I mean, I think what Bernie has still done is create a really interesting, important conversation that needed to happen. And every time his poll numbers go up, the conversation gets more pointed and Hillary Clinton has to give more ground. And that's probably a good thing. Bill, go ahead. It's a great thing. Uh, and, and all the efforts of the Democratic hierarchy to insulate Clinton from actual debate uh, has, was a mistake. Uh, and the more this debate moves, this isn't just about who we nominate. It's about what our platform is. It's about – just what the president tried to do last night, move the entire American debate uh, down the road. But you talk about polls in the New York Times this morning also, the, the national poll. Bernie is closer to Hillary in every sense, in Iowa, New Hampshire, and nationally, by a fair amount than Obama was at this point in 2008. Uh, he's, uh, he has cut half the distance. One of the questions here about, uh, 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 about the next few weeks is organization. People said he didn't have one because it was sort of an ad hoc approach. He had a lot of volunteers, a lot of small donor ad hoc approach. The Working Families Party made a very gutsy endorsement, now moveon.org, Democracy for America. They have like a field in a box. An instant organization has just taken place for the uh, Sanders campaign. That's going to make a huge difference, I think, especially in Iowa, but in other primary states. This is about to become, I think, what it deserves to be. Uh, a fundamental referendum on the basic model of pay-to-play politics, globalization, and and information technology theory of recovery of the democratic establishment versus the more populist point of view. Uh, Kalila, a last thought on that? Well, I think it sounds great, but if you look at the demographic makeup of Iowa and New Hampshire, it doesn't really match or mirror the rest of the country. And so those may be the kinds of institutional changes uh, that voters in those states may be concerned about. Whether that translates to voters in places like Ohio and South Carolina, I'm not convinced. Uh, we have to end because uh, on this because it happened after last week's wheelhouse. Uh, Maine Governor Paula Page taking on one of the really important issues that crosses state boundaries here in New England. A lot of big problems around heroin and drug trafficking. And he mentioned our, our little state, Connecticut. 
Now, the traffickers, these are people that take drugs. These are guys that are named D-Money, Smoothie, Shifty, uh, these type of guys that come from Connecticut, New York. They come up here, they sell their heroin, then they go back home. Incidentally, half the time they impregnate a young white girl before they leave, which is a real sad thing because then we have another issue that we've got to deal with down the road. We don't really have time to play Paula Page's, I, I suppose, apology for that. He didn't really apologize. He basically said he slipped up. Yeah, and, he and, and, and everyone knows that most of the women in Maine are white anyway. Colin, I mean, I know it's, it's a week old and it's Paula Page. He says crazy, stupid things. But uh, he mentions Connecticut by name, which I find uh, remarkable for some reason. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to be addressed by my Paula Page name, which is Caesar Slickback uh, for this segment. <laughs> but, um, I, yeah, I don't know how many it's – I mean, this is very much his style – before there was Donald Trump, there was Paul LePage. There's always seems to be room in America for this kind of buffoon. Uh, I'm not sure how much more there is to make of it. I mean, if other than if I were the main Democratic Party, I would be thinking we really ought to be able to organize around things like this. How come we can't? It's, it's amazing. Kalila? I would just say he should stop watching Netflix reruns of Orange is the New Black and The Wire and actually talk to people in Maine to figure out why there's such an epidemic. It's not our fault. Uh, Bill Curry? I have it on good authority that a lot of those Connecticut people he's talking about are from Greenwich and Wilton, just so that we're all clear. (laughs) And uh, I I wanted to bring some Paul LePage quotes in from his famous quotes to share with you because I go to Maine a lot, as you know. Yeah, I know. A lot of time I've been following him closely. But they're also scatological. They're all so (laughs) awful that I can't use any of them uh, on the air. Uh, Lastly, I will say that, as you know, I've been going up there for years. And in recent years, uh, uh, Collins actually come up and visited me a couple times up in Maine. And it was at about that time that Paul LePage began focusing on Connecticut. Right. I'm just saying. Yeah. You're just All saying. Right. So I'm just going to leave it at that. I, I'd like to – somebody should crunch his numbers though. I bet it's not half the time they impregnated. I, I, Can yeah. anybody analyze <laughs> yeah. the numbers on that? Just, Is that – It's just the most amazing hold thing. I, 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 I should the, get the somebody horrible from, un- yeah. dark underbelly yeah. of this yeah. politics though, it's amazing how many LePages and Cruises and Trumps are out there and what it all represents. And I think it'll play itself out, but it's an ugly thing to have to sit and watch. I, I would love to get on somebody, uh, somebody from uh, Maine Public Radio to just really talk about what people in Maine truly think about the governor. But we're going to have to leave our conversation there for now. Bill Curry is a columnist for Salon.com. Thanks so much, Bill. Always a pleasure. Thank Th- you, my friend. Thanks to Kalila Brown, Dean, Associate Professor of Political Science at Quinnipiac University, who will be joining us in the Wheelhouse Uncensored next Tuesday in New Haven. Thank you, Kalila. Looking forward to it. And thanks also to Colin McEnroe, the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WMPR. Where can they find out about your Watkinson event? Watkinson.org for the comedy show tonight. It's a comedy show tonight. Watkinson.org if you want to find out more. Go to our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. If you want to continue this conversation, I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us.